hope is an incredibly powerful change agent. It is hope that allows people to endure. It's, you, you heard Mike talking about it at the end. It's hope that brings joy and sorrow and comfort and pain. It was the Apostle Paul who wrote, at, in the end, when it, everything's been accounted for, and you know, it's all been kind of said and done, three things remain. And hope, along with love and faith, are those three things. It was hope that oftentimes was the difference between survival and death in World War II prison camps. It was hope that underlies all of the African-American spirituals sung over generations of enslavement. Hope for freedom, hope for recompense and reunion. Hope teaches us that our now is oftentimes controlled by what we perceive our then will be. Do you get that? Hope. You know, it teaches us that our now is, is oftentimes controlled by what we perceive our then is going to be. I heard an example of it this week. I was in the finance industry for 20 years, and every economic textbook you pick up talks about widgets and widget factories. Have you ever, does anybody know what a widget is? So you know what he does. That's why they use it in the economic textbook, because it could be anything. And this guy gave an example of two guys hired in the widget factory. One guy was going to make widgets every day, eight hours a day, five days a week, 52 weeks a year. He was going to make a widget. And his, his recompense, his reward for all of that effort was going to be $20,000. Okay, well, you know, he's living on an hourly salary. And they hired another guy to make the same widgets, the same five days a week, the same 52 weeks a year. And his recompense, his reward for manufacturing those widgets was going to be $20 million. And so after about a month on the job, the guy that was getting paid the $20,000, he comes in to the factory owner. He goes, this is ridiculous. This job is utterly meaningless. All I do is make widgets. It has no significance at all. My back is breaking. My hands are cramping. I quit. I'm out. Well, that gave the factory owner some concern. So he went over to see what was going on with the other widget manufacturer. And when he got over to his, um, uh, his uh, manufacturing line, he looked down at him, and the guy was whistling while he worked. Couldn't have been happier with his circumstances. Never was late, always stayed a little bit, never was late to work, always stayed past quitting time. Why? Because his perception of the reward. It changes everything. Hope changes everything. Paul knew this, and in trying to help a church in Corinth that seemed to be starting to go the way that maybe our culture overall is, that Jesus isn't really who he said he is, he's not the way, the truth, and the life, that really Jesus is a great moral teacher. I mean, just a really good teacher in the line of other good teachers. Paul says, look, if, if that's where you're going, you're losing hope that Jesus is more than a hope for this world. In fact, this is exactly what I wrote. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be the most pitied of people. And so with that in mind, I want to jump into this week's They Say, I Say teaching. We're looking at um, the, the Sermon on the Mount and how Jesus compared what he was teaching relative to what the religious leaders of the day were teaching and how it was very different. And I want to start out this morning just quickly showing you why it is important to spend time in the Scriptures. 
And I know that I know, you know, that we're busy, and I know that everybody's not a theology teacher, and I know sometimes this can be difficult, but it is so important to get some understanding of what it is that Jesus is teaching. Because if you don't, people come along, smart people come along, and they pull Bible verses out of context, and things can get really confusing really quickly. I'm gonna show you one this morning that if you don't, if you haven't spent the time in scriptures, people could people could lead you down different paths with this. And so, check this out. Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, same sermon, okay? Same sermon. And he starts by saying this to his followers. He goes, you guys are the salt of the earth, right? You are going to be what retards decay on this earth. You guys are the light of the world. And because you're the salt of the earth and the light in a dark world, just like someone would not put a light under a bowl, but they would put a light on a stand, Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Let me repeat, Jesus says in, the, in one of the opening parts of this famous sermon, it's very important the world needs to see you, who you are, how you live, what you believe, what you're doing. Let your light shine before others. Raise your hand if you have heard this somewhere before. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine which gets very confusing. Do you want to know why? Because if he was just saying this, if I was just, well, he was just saying this, but if I was just to read this out loud, I would guess about 30 seconds later, Jesus says this, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. What? Wait a minute. I, Jesus, you just gave, like I made a decision based on part A, right? Like you said, don't, I need to take my light out from under the bowl and I need to put it on a lampstand. And so here's what I did, Jesus. I'm following your teaching. I went out and I got a fish bumper sticker. Not a magnet, Jesus, a sticker. I dusted off the family Bible and I put it front and center on my coffee table so when my friends come, they're going to think I'm weird, but I'm going to let my light shine. I changed the background pic on my phone, made all of my friends WWJD friendship bracelets, got a verse of the day on my desk in my cube. I am letting my light shine. And now all of a sudden, Seconds later, you say to me, whatever you do, don't practice your righteousness in front of others. I wish I had heard that before I put that sticker on my Lexus. How am I going to take it off and there's going to be like an outline, a sticky outline of a fish on my car? Which is it, Jesus? Do I show them or do I not show them? And so welcome to They Say, I Say, where Jesus keeps taking religious teaching and upping the ante on it. Because if we've learned anything so far over these bunch of weeks, it's this. Jesus seems to be a lot more concerned with what's going on inside of us than what is happening outside of us. You've heard it said, don't murder. But I'm telling you, if you even harbor anger against a brother, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I'm telling you, if you even look lustfully at a woman, and so Jesus picks up this same theme with this teaching here, but this time it's with our religion and our religiosity and our works. And Jesus is again looking at your heart. 
Let me show you. Here's what he says in chapter 5 in its entirety. In the same way, let, let your light shine before others. Why? That they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Why do we let our light shine before others? What's our ultimate motivation? Our motivation for doing things in front of others to be seen is to bring glory to God. God wants you to be visible in the way you live out your life so that you can bring glory to him. God is not a narcissist. The problem is God is the only one capable of helping people. And so he would like his name lifted up so that people would turn towards him. Chapter 6. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And so here is what, what's the heart attitude here. Reward from men. And again, Jesus says, look, you got to be careful with this. Uh, just like last week. Remember, Jesus never needed, we said it last week. He doesn't need to warn you to be careful about adultery. It's not like it snuck up on you and you're suddenly going, you know, wait, you're not my wife. I didn't even realize. Jesus is saying something happens with this that's going to be very natural for you, that you're not even going to see it coming. You need to be careful about it. I know this, and some of you have heard me share my testimony on it. In fact, most of you will. I won't go all over it. But you know our nonprofit, Beyond the Walls, started out because of this same thing. I was in New York City with my brothers. We were going to um, go see a football game, and I saw a homeless guy on the street. And as I walked by, I felt like the Lord said, give the guy money. Now, I usually don't listen to the Lord when he tells me these things because I like my money. Um, but I felt a somewhat pretty good conviction to give him money. I reached into my pocket, and in my pocket was not the dollar I was hoping to give him. In my pocket, the lowest denomination I had was a 20. And I assumed, well, God can't possibly want me to give a homeless guy a 20, right? So I must have heard him wrong. And I walked on until I felt this overwhelming kind of thing. No, go back and give him the 20. And so I went back and gave him the 20. The only thing that was more overwhelming than the desire or the thought to give that homeless guy the 20 was to make sure I told everyone I could possibly find in the next week that I gave a homeless guy 20 bucks. I would, I would figure out a way to work it in any conversation I could. Anything, anywhere, you know. I, I went to ShopRite and I had to pay and I pulled, out a, I pulled out my cash and the only thing I had was a 20 and I gave it to the girl and I said, you know, speaking of 20s, I was in New York City last week and you wouldn't believe this, but I gave a homeless guy. And, and so this is quite natural. Nobody told me, you know, you should really talk yourself up when it comes to your giving. It's really easy. I didn't need to be educated on these things. In fact, what Jesus does is he actually starts with my story. He goes on specifically calling out three areas where we tend to do this. We need to be careful. We need to be careful about doing our acts of righteousness in front of people to get reward from them because I love for people to think I'm good. Now, walk with me through this because they're so similar. It's almost shocking. I, if, if I had the ability, I'd do the chart for you, but my chart would look kind of sketchy, so I didn't do it. But stick with me. Here is three areas that Jesus talks about. Here's the first one. So when you give to the needy, now there's an assumption that we're going to be giving to the needy. This is not giving to the church. That was already presumed. Jesus' people were to give sacrificially to the church, first fruits, but then there was this kind of secondary alms that they'd be, Jesus' people would be helping the poor and the needy. So the teaching is not give to the needy. That's assumed. When you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as John did. 
right? As the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, see, this gets caught up in, in teaching. We love to make religiosity out of everything. And then everybody's like, well, you know, my left, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I guess I, I should make my check out with my right hand because I don't want my left hand to know what I'm doing. And Jesus said, don't let your left hand know. And this was likely just kind of a t contemporary teaching that had to do with how quickly um, when you feel like the Lord calls you to give to somebody in need, you do it. What I tend to do is I find somebody that's in need and I try to figure out all the reasons I shouldn't help them. Well, you know, maybe if they would just, right? And, and, and this teaching is not only just, you give them the money. You don't, need to, you, don't need, you don't need to stop and think about it. You just give them the money, right? And so he goes on, he goes, truly I tell you, or excuse me, when you give them the need, you don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your giving may be in secret, that your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And so what do we have in this story? Uh, don't do it to be seen, number one. That's what hypocrites do, number two. They got their reward now, number three. Do it in secret, four. Get a reward from God, and five. Next story, Jesus says, and when you pray, it's not a teaching on prayer. Jesus assumes you'll be speaking with God. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you, now see, here we turn it into religion. And when you pray, go into your room, close the door. Okay, so I got to pray. I can't pray. I got to pray in a room and close the door. That's not the point of this teaching. The point of this teaching is you do this so it's seen by your father, not to get rewards from men. Then your father, who sees what's done in secret, will reward you. Jesus goes on. When you fast, so when you give and when you pray and when you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do. They disfigure their faces to show others they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. Guess what's coming? When you fast, put, on your head, put oil on your head and wash up your face. Look good so that it won't be obvious to others you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen and your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. There is a pattern. Almost the exact same words are used in every story. What Jesus is saying to them and to us as a warning, remember now, be very careful. He's saying, be careful because here's the problem with your worship. It's phony. See, the world's caught on to this about us. It's hypocritical. It's, it's a problem. Your religion, you've turned it into a show. The word seen there, to be seen by men, in the Greek, it's a word theaomai, which means, get, it means theatrical. Then in verse 2, each time he calls them hypocrites. Again, the Greek word, hypocrites, means actor on a stage. He's going, guys, when, when you're doing what you're doing right now, when you're doing your giving and your fasting and your praying, you're doing it just to be seen by others and to get a reward from them. You want them to think you're kind or generous or spiritual. He picks out three elements of our, our faith to attack. One is giving, two is praying, and three is fasting. Think about it, right? Giving is the element of faith that deals with others. Praying is the element that deals with, with our relationship with God. Fasting is the element that deals with ourselves and kind of the mortification of our flesh. And so he sums up the whole area of religious responsibility. 
Whatever it is that, that I am in my worship, it should be coming from the depths of my heart, not hypocrisy. Your giving is phony. Your praying is phony. Your fasting is phony. And so really, it, he unmasks hypocrisy. Now, this is the way this verse is traditionally taught. Don't do your acts of righteousness in front of people, right? Do them in secret. Why? Because don't be a hypocrite, right? Don't do it for the reward from men. I'm going to take this in a different direction that I think is so, of course, I think it's good because I wrote it, but I think it's so interesting because nobody talks about it. And it's really interesting. Here, here's why. Stick with me now. And stick with me through the end of it because it really has the power to change the way you live your life. What's more interesting for me in this story is that while Jesus condemns their hypocrisy, he never condemns their desire for a reward. In fact, not only does he not condemn their desire for a reward, he encouraged it. Because their issue is not the, their desire for a reward. The issue is the reward they desired. You getting that? Huge issue. I'm going to repeat it. Somebody should Instagram it. I need a millennial right now. The issue that Jesus is with dealing with here is not their desire for a reward. He encouraged that. The issue is not their desire for a reward. The issue is the reward that they desired. Now, stay with me because I've never heard anybody explain this before. Jesus does not condemn the hope of future reward as a motivator for acts of righteousness. In fact, he encourages it repeatedly. You remember the story of the rich young ruler, right? A man comes up to Jesus and says, Teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit life? And you understand that that's kind of bad theology, right? And, and so Jesus tries to help him understand. He makes it a hard issue. But he starts with where the guy is. He says, Well, you know the commandments. You could try to keep all of them. And the young man, again, because it was uh, an external righteousness issue for him, he goes, Well, I have kept all of them. Is there anything I lack? And so here comes the heart issue. Jesus goes, well, then, uh, if you'd like uh, to be perfect, here's what you could do. Go sell your possessions and give to the poor. And sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Which sounds an awful lot like a guy who taught us not to store up for ourselves treasure on earth where more than vermin destroy, but to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Well, you know the story. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth in this world. Jesus said, sell this, buy that. And he said, I'll keep this. Now, here's what's fascinating. Peter and the disciples, they hear this, and they realize that unlike the rich young ruler, they have given up some stuff to follow Jesus. They had careers. They had family. Now they're out on the road. And so Matthew records Peter saying this to Jesus. He goes, uh, Jesus, excuse me, Jesus, you know, the boys and I, you know, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus replied to Peter. You remember the reply? Jesus looked at him and said, you selfish pig, you ungrateful little weasel. 
I've been chased all over Jerusalem. I've been called nuts by my family. I've been abandoned and persecuted by my own people. I have no home, no food, and no friends. I don't have a place to rest my head. And you want to know what's in it for you. At least that's what I would think Jesus might say. <laughs> but he doesn't say anything like that. That's what I would say. But instead, Jesus says this, truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So those are, that's the disciples, that's what they're going to get. And everyone, now this is for the rest of us, we're included in everyone, everybody who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Jesus says, yeah, you're going to get much more back. In fact, some of you know Jesus started this Sermon on the Mount with what we call the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, blessed are those that mourn, blessed are the meek. You know what his concluding statement is? Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. Jesus pushes reward. Paul picks up the same point. Here's what he told the Corinthians. He said, each one's work will become manifest for the day, the judgment day, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, if everything that my life just amounted to, what I gave my energy, my thought, my time, my money, my devotion, my effort to, if that's just burned up because it's meaningless in the kingdom to come, Paul says, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In other words, as we're going into the kingdom, all of the things that are not of any meaning in the kingdom to come are just going to be burned off of us. We, were, we're gonna, we, we can show up with an investment over there that's been preserved for us, or we can show up with the rags on our back, but that's our choices. I mean, you'll be saved, but it's, there's, there's something happening. It matters what we do here somehow seems to matter over there. See, I think as believers, as followers of Jesus, most of us, when we hear about heavenly rewards, and there are, I could spend the morning just giving you the verses on rewards in heaven. I think that we tend to think that heaven is our reward. This is terrible teaching. In fact, perhaps the religious tradition you came from taught that if you live a good life, if you're a good person, if you do more good things than bad things, your reward is that you get to go to heaven. The truth is that idea is totally foreign to Jesus and the writers of the New Testament. Eternal life for us is not our reward. It's not our prize for a life well lived. We did nothing to deserve it. Rewards you get for something you did. Our eternal life is Jesus' reward. We are his prize, which sounds kind of crazy, but maybe you better rethink just who you are to God. Paul summed up this truth this way. He says, for it is by grace, grace meaning unmerited favor, you, you haven't done anything, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. Eternal life is not a reward, it's a gift. 
It's not a prize, it's a present. And so when Jesus and Paul and James and Peter and John, when they speak of eternal rewards in heaven, they're not talking about heaven as the eternal reward. They're talking about an actual recompense for the way you lived your life here, there. Nobody teaches this. And for centuries, people of faith used to, they understood it. And it was for centuries what undergirded them that gave them hope, this concept of eternal reward, how I lived here would matter there. Eternal reward and understanding it helped them to prevail over the most difficult of circumstances. Here's what I can't help but wonder. Is it possible that the church in our modern world has become just so weak, so milk toasty, because our hope for treasures in a world to come has become just so low? The writer of the book of Hebrews in trying to explain this in the New Testament, here's what he said about faith and hope and reward. Now, faith is confidence. Another version says being sure. Faith is being sure in what we hope for and assurance or certain about we don't, what we don't see. Now, get, stick with me here. It is important. Faith, here's what faith is. You're saved by faith because of God's grace. Here's what faith is. Faith is being really sure about what you hope for. Not just hope, a certainty about what it is that I'm hoping for. And then, uh, then the writer says, this is what the ancients, all of the heroes of faith, were commended for. This is what all of the biblical heroes understood their confidence, their certainty in what they hoped for was what allowed them to live the way they lived. If you want to understand what allows people of great faith to live the way they do, this is it. They're certain. They're not just hoping like, I hope, I hope that God is going to be pleased with me. I hope that things are going to work out for me. No, faith is going, no, no, I know. Like, I know. Jesus told me that if I would follow him and I, and I would sacrifice for that kingdom, this kingdom, there is waiting over here for me something that is going to blow my mind. He gives examples. He goes, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. Adam and Eve's sons, right? You know the story? What allowed Abel? Abel goes out and he brings the first fruits of what he has. He brings the best of what he has to God as a sacrifice. And what does Cain bring? Well, like a 20, right? What's left over? Faith. By faith, Abel was sure and certain of a reward from God. Cain, not so much. Like, I don't know. If I give, if I give all this money away, I mean, what's going to happen? I think I'd rather just hold on to. Fact checked out. The, the writer sums it up this way. This is so interesting. The writer sums it up this way. I guarantee you've never thought about faith this way. Without faith, I didn't write this, so don't email me. No one's really sure who the writer of the book of Hebrews was, so I can't even give you his email address. But without faith, it is impossible to please God because anybody who comes to him must, they got to do two things. They must believe he exists, and they have to believe that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Has anybody ever taught you that? That the, there are two components to faith? that you need to believe that he exists and you need to believe that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. 
In order to please God, you have, your faith needs to consist of these two things. So here's the question for you this morning. You want to please God, right? Like, I know you do. It's 85 degrees. It's Sunday. It's a summer Sunday, and you're sitting in church, so I'm pretty sure you have an interest in pleasing God. Do you believe, do you really believe? I'm pretty sure you believe God exists. Do you really believe that he rewards those who earnestly seek him? Like when Jesus said, do not store up your treasures here, store them up over there. Do you really believe that? And so the writer of Hebrews goes, let me give you some more examples. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. By faith, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs of the same promise. What allowed Abraham to leave his country and his family? What allowed Isaac and Jacob to follow their fathers? For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. He was looking forward to something else, not this. And the writer goes, goes on. He goes over all of these ancient heroes of the faith, and he sums it up after going over them. He sums it up this way. He goes, all of these people were still living by faith. What is faith? Well, it's, it's being certain of what you hope for, right? And there's two components to it. I've got to believe God exists, and I've got to believe those, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. All of these people were living that way when they died, they didn't receive the things promised. This could put televangelists out of business, by the way, right? They didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had the opportunity to return. But instead, listen to me, church, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one, and therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. They didn't receive in this life what was promised. They were looking forward to another life, a better country. You want to have the faith of Moses? I, you know, sometimes I know this teaching, well, I don't really need to look to rewards because I just love Jesus. Do you want to see faith of Moses, okay? We, we write songs about, I just want to have the faith of Moses. By faith, the writer of Hebrews says about Moses, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Right? So he could have claimed privilege, but he decided he wasn't going to. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. What allowed him to do that? Because he was looking ahead to his reward. Rewards mattered to Moses. They should matter to you. What fueled Moses' faith? What allowed him to turn down privilege and favor and royalty in this world? He had an assurance and a certainty about treasures coming. Long before Andy Stanley was famous, his father, Charles Stanley, was a pretty big deal himself. And I, I haven't found anybody that has spent more time talking about this concept. 
This week I was reading a lot of what he's written on it. He's got some interesting stuff. For example, this concept, this doctrine of heavenly rewards helps bridge, the, helps bridge being judged for our work in this life and salvation by grace. We are saved by grace, but we are judged on and rewarded for our faith, for the, how it works itself out in works. Paul said, look, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he reaps. Don't lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we don't grow weary. Stanley said a number of years ago, I preached several messages on the topic of rewards. And as the series progressed, I, I noticed a change in one of our high school students. Ken had never been much of a spiritual leader in our youth department. In fact, I learned later up to that time, he'd, for the most part, gone the way of the world. But something about this series on heavenly rewards changed the way he lived. In the weeks that followed, I had several opportunities to talk with Ken. During our time together, he shared with me details of his spiritual pilgrimage and why he believed the series on rewards had such an effect on him. Now listen, church, because I think that we are a lot like this kid. He said, I was always under the impression that as long as a person had trusted in Christ and knew he was going to heaven, that was pretty much it. I mean, I didn't see any really, real point in giving up on anything down here. What difference would that make? When you began talking about rewards, I was shocked. I'd never heard anything like that before. And all of a sudden, I started thinking about everything I did. I began to realize every moment in my life counted towards something. And so how it worked itself out for Ken, he goes, I quit drinking. I quit going to parties. I started inviting my friends to church. Everything changed. Before that, I wasn't really motivated. Once I realized that what I do now determines what eternity is going to look like, I got busy. And when Ken went to college, he made a significant impact for Christ on campus, including his fraternity. Stanley concluded by saying, I can't help but wonder how many other Kens sit in my congregation in churches all over the country. Believers have been lulled into thinking that once they get a ticket to heaven, they sit back and relax. They see no connection between their lives now and eternity. Do you see why rewards matter? I was talking to my, my, one of my kids about this this week, and uh, talking about being motivated by what's to come. And they said, well, that doesn't seem very spiritual, Dad. That seems kind of consumeristic. I mean, shouldn't we be motivated out of our love for Jesus? And so here's how I, how I explained it. I said, okay, well, imagine as a good father, I came to Caleb and I said to Caleb, Caleb, whatever you do, don't spend all of your time, money, energy, thoughts, on, on, on building up things in this world because none of that's going to matter for eternity. Caleb, whatever you do, build your life over here. Now, the reality is if Caleb had the ability to turn down everything that he could get in this world to build over here, do you know the only reason he'd be willing to do that? Because he loved and trusted his father. Otherwise, we wouldn't listen. Now, let me make this completely practical. Do you believe what Jesus said, that you should store up for yourselves treasures in heaven? That your righteousness should not be put on display for you to gain a reward here, to build up a reputation for yourself here, that you should be doing things in secret, disciplining your flesh. Try doing this, by the way. I just ran across recently somebody that really needed a significant amount of money. And so at first I was like, well, I'm going to give it to them. But then, you know, I started my right hand, my left hand started thinking about what my right hand was doing and started talking it out of it. But then I just kept thinking to myself, yeah, but they're going to really think I'm a nice guy if I give them this money. I see, you got to be careful because it's just so natural, right? 
Do you believe what Jesus said? Do you think he meant it when he, when he said, don't store up for yourselves treasure here, store them up over there? Let me make it more personal. Does your checkbook read like that? Right? Like if I got your checkbook and said, oh man, this is so clear. Look at where he, look at where the treasure is. It's all over there. Because mine would probably be a little confusing, unfortunately. Does the way you inspire your kids to live their lives, how much time do you spend trying to get your kids to be the best at sports and get the highest ACT score and get the first seat in the band? How much are you telling them over and over that it matters what happens here? Don't worry about over there. You're saved by faith. Don't worry about that. You're good. You're in. Or do we spend any time with our kids saying, you know, don't make it all about what happens here. Does it impact how you forgive people? Does your patience and kindness in your marriage show this? Or do we just fall into the trap? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I fix this marriage. It doesn't matter because I'm saved by grace anyway. Or do you go, you know what? I'm living for, I'm living, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invest here for there. And that means I got to fix this. This matters to God. So I got to fix this because there's gain here. I don't need to worry about my total happiness now. What if I worry about eternity? Do you see how this concept works its way in how we live our lives, why it's so important, why the ancients all understood it and allowed them to overcome all kinds of crazy obstacles? The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, eternal rewards are available, quote, not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. All. Everybody. This is open to everybody. You don't have to have the word saint before your name. It's open to everyone. He goes on, the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he's slave or free. The word everyone, again, is pretty, is pretty encouraging. How we live on this world, even though we stand forgiven by grace, matters. How you live on this world matters. The ancients and the modern-day heroes of our faith had one thing in common. They believed in God, and they believed that he rewarded those who earnestly seek him. Many of you know the story of Jim Elliott. On Tuesday, January 3rd, 1956, he and four other missionaries landed on a small strip of land in the jungles of Ecuador. It was a dangerous landing. They couldn't all land at one time. For years, they had been dreaming about this missionary trip. They had been planning out this moment. Their hearts were set on reaching the Aka Indians with the good news of Jesus. Now, the Aukas were notoriously dangerous. No one had reached them before. Some had exchanged gift with them, gifts with them, but the Aukas had always attacked them. And so for three months, these missionaries had been flying over the area, dropping gifts and shouting greetings. When they landed, they built a hut, and they waited so as not to be threatening for the Aukas to come and find them. They knew the dangers. Their wives had discussed the possibility of becoming widows. Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's wife, said they went simply because they, knew they belonged to God because he was their creator and their redeemer, they had no choice but to willingly obey him, and that meant obeying his command to take the good news to every nation. On Friday, January 6th, three orcas, one man and two women, approached them, and they exchanged greetings. The missionaries showed them rubber bands, yo-yos, balloons. On Sunday, January 8th, 
They were due to radio in at 4.30. But there was silence. And when no message came, a plane was sent and then a rescue party where they discovered four bodies. All had been lanced to death. The fifth was never found. It seemed as if they had been ambushed. All five were martyred, martyred for the sake of Christ. All five worried more about building up a treasure over here than holding on to one in this world. All of these men were married. Four of them were fathers. One's wife was pregnant. They taught this apparently at a young age to their children because her th one of the three-year-olds was heard telling this crying newborn baby, never you mind, when we get to heaven, I'll show you which one is daddy. As the band comes up, we, we need to know what the ancients knew and what Jim Elliot knew and what Paul knew and Abel and Abraham and Peter and James and John. I was at Wheaton on a college visit this year and I saw Jim Elliot's diary. They have it on display there. And here's the entry that many of you know has kind of resonated over time, which spoke to why he did what he did. In his own handwriting, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The power of eternal reward. And so, Father, as a people who have been all too willing to camp out on grace, but really slow to invest in another kingdom. Would you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to believe like Abraham and Abel, like Moses, like Jim Elliot? Would you help us to believe that if we would just let some of this life go and invest over there, there waits for us reward beyond description. Help us to trust and believe. We ask it in the great name of Jesus. Amen.